The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning's sermon is titled Exiting Exodus because we plan to finish the book this morning. And so if you need a pew Bible, you'll want to turn to page 89 as we finish out the book of Exodus. Hopefully you have it open. We'll be looking through chapter 35 mainly, and then we'll look at highlights from the closing chapters of the book. This has been such an incredible book. I've grown in knowing who the Lord is and why he's so wonderful. At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is in Egypt. This was God's plan, though. God had told Abraham that he would make a great nation of him and that he would give him innumerable descendants. And as Joseph and his brothers have all these descendants, they're in Egypt. But God had also told Abraham that they would be slaves for 400 years. When the 400 years are up, things get much worse because there's a new Pharaoh in town. And in Exodus chapter 1, that Pharaoh did not know or care who Joseph was, and he starts murdering Israelite baby boys. At this point, the people of Israel cry out for deliverance, and God, as God often does, delivers them in an unlikely and surprising way. There's a baby named Moses who had survived floating in a little ark-like boat down the Nile River, and God has him raised in the house of Pharaoh. And then Moses tries to take matters into his own hands at about age 40, and he fails miserably, and in ignominy, he flees to the desert. But there he encounters the Lord, Yahweh, who reveals himself as the self-existent I am at a burning bush and calls Moses to go back. Moses does not want to go back, but he eventually does go back. God works 10 mighty and miraculous plagues. And then through the Passover lamb, God brings people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then that's where the end credits roll, right? No, that's only chapter 15. But if you've ever been in a church that's preached Exodus, or if you've watched a movie about Exodus, or you've thought of Exodus in terms of pop culture, Charleston Heston is done at that point. There's nothing left to do. But there's still chapters 16 through 40 in the book of Exodus. This is so important for us because we tend to think the story's over when it's actually just at the beginning. And you and I need to know this for our own life. See, God isn't just interested in bringing them out of Egypt. He's also interested in bringing Egypt out of them. And that's what chapter 16 through 40 is about. So here as we exit Exodus, we're going to marvel at the work that God has won in their hearts to bring Egypt out of them. So let's pick up today. In Exodus 35, the verses that our brother just read for us. If you're a note taker, just three parts this morning. The first part is cheerful giving. And we want to see how the Lord has won a victory in their hearts. Exodus 35, verse 4. This is just read, but I want to remind us. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Verse 5, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of generous heart. So any contributions that will be given will only be given by people whose heart moves them to do so. Why would they want to build the tabernacle? The tabernacle represents the Lord in their very midst. 
And it also represents their trust in God for future grace. This past week, one of my kids asked me, Dad, do we have to go to church? (laughs) To which I said, yes, you do. Yes, you do. But I then asked, but do you want to go to church? And thankfully they said, we love going to church. And I said, that's great. I'm praying that'll continue. But for right now, you have to go. You have to go. Don't we all know that there's a big difference between have to and want to? I want to ask this morning, is your relationship with God have to or want to? Here in this passage, the Lord is telling them, I ask you to give what your heart wants to do. The Lord can build the tabernacle on his own, but here's an opportunity for them to want to. I remember in my own life when the Lord moved me from have to to want to. I remember years of going through the duty and drudgery that I had to go to church, had to do those things. And then I remember something changing in me. I remember going to my pastor in the temerity and insouciance of youth and saying to him, Pastor, you know, in the last six months, your preaching has gotten much better. (laughs) The gall that I had, right? And he said to me, you know, Josh, to be honest with you, my preaching is not any different. You are. And he was right. His preaching hadn't changed. God had changed me. There's a big difference between have to and want to. So what happened in Exodus that moved them from have to to want to? This is not the first time God has told them to give to the tabernacle. The first time was chapter 25. The Lord said, give to the tabernacle anyone who wants to. And where did they give all that gold and silver initially to make a golden calf? After that moment, the Lord showed who he is in all of his goodness. He's the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet he's the Lord who will forgive iniquity and transgression by taking the guilt and consequences we deserve and placing them on his own substitute, who we now know is Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how good the Lord is. And now this time, they want to. Have you ever experienced deja vu? You feel like, I think I've been here before. I think I've faced this circumstance before. God has given them these instructions before, but now he gives them to them again. The instructions are different. They are different. Brother, sister, if you're experiencing deja vu, it might be because God is working you from have to to want to, and he's just repeating the lesson. God moves them from have to to want to. And what would make us want to? Jesus said something about God the Father in his earthly ministry that's so wonderful. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask, seek, and knock. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, it will be opened. But then he says, here's the reason why you can trust that. If you've ever had an earthly father and you've asked them for bread, they don't give you a stone. If you ask them for fish, they don't give you a scorpion. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Now remember, the Israelites were in slavery and their master was Pharaoh and he wouldn't even give them straw for bricks. But now when the Lord asked them to build a temple for the Lord, the Lord gave them all the gold. They can trust the Lord to give what they don't have tomorrow because he's given them what they have today. The Lord's goodness is what moves them from have to to want to. In fact, I don't think you can move from have to to want to unless you understand God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 9, 
Paul is talking to them about wanting to give to those in need. He says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. But then he uses almost the same words as are in Exodus here. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. But what would make someone a cheerful giver, he said in the previous chapter, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What moves us from have to to want to when we know in the depth of our heart the grace of our Lord Jesus for us? Robert Murray Machane warned his hearers about this when he wrote, I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely And not grudgingly, it requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its life than its money. And Robert Murray Machane is right. To move from have to to want to requires a grasp of grace. But don't misunderstand me. When you know it's all of grace, then you know there's nothing that's yours that you contribute anyway. Perhaps you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom, the Dutch Christian who wrote the wonderful book, The Hiding Place. And in The Hiding Place, she shares an illustration of this in her own youth. She had an aunt, who she called Tante Yans, who contracted a deathly disease and was going to die soon. Now, this aunt had spent her whole life as a philanthropist doing incredible charitable things that she was well known for and that she regarded well in her own life. So when Corey's dad said, we need to go tell your aunt that she's going to die, How can we encourage her? And Corey's dad said this, perhaps she'll take heart from all she has accomplished. We know she puts great store in her accomplishments. So when they walked into the hospital room to tell the aunt that she was going to pass away in just a few weeks, the aunt immediately realized why they had all come into the room and was crestfallen. As they tried to encourage her by all the accomplishments that she'd achieved in her life, she said this, empty empty. How could I ever bring anything to God that he would be impressed with my trinkets? But then she paused and said this, and Corey wrote this in her book. Her aunt said, dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. When you know it's all of grace, You can hold loosely what you know is not yours anyway. Well, pick up with me in verse 10 of Exodus verse 35. We first saw that they were asked to give their goods. Now we see they're asked to give their gifts. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So they're to give their goods, but they're also to give their Gifts, And as our brother read in verse 20 through 24, we read that everyone did, both men and women. Pick up in verse 25 now, if you would. Verse 25, every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women, notice, whose hearts stirred them to use their skill. The question was, Do you have to or want to? And here are many people who want to, and they want to give their gifts, their God-given skills. Verse 29, if we pick up there, 
all the men and women of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. You know, one of the biggest differences in a culture between have to and want to is this. If you have a culture of have to, you have a culture of disharmony and strife. But if you have a culture of want to, you have a culture of harmony and peace. When they all want to because they have the same goal, then they have harmony because they have humility in the same purpose. With the same purpose, they have the same process. But I want you to notice now how these gifts are gifts that come from the Spirit of God himself. Look down now in verse 30, please, of Exodus 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. I just want you to notice at this point that the agent doing the work behind the scenes is the Spirit of God. Did you know it takes the Spirit of God to do the work of God? It takes the Spirit of God to build the house of God. It takes the Spirit of God for anything of eternal or lasting significance to happen. Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read that God created the world, but the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, active in creation. And here in the building of the tabernacle, the Spirit of God is actively giving the gifts that enable the construction of the tabernacle. Praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit, but let's not move without it. Now notice the Spirit of God's gifting happens in individual people. So look again in verse 30. I just want you to notice a phrase. It says, see the Lord has called by name, Bezalel is the first one, and then we'll come up with other names later. Here's why I want you to, to notice this. If we were playing word association and I said Exodus, you would probably say Moses. He's the one that in the book is called the one that God knew by name. But I want to remind us this morning, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord was not only working through Moses. And the Lord is never only working through one or two people that might be written about. The Lord is working through all of his people. And all of his people are known by name. And they're all gifted to do what God has made them to do. So pick up in verse 31. The Lord is called by name Bezalel, but he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Notice, to devise. So he has given him these gifts to do things that he can do. Artistic designs, work in gold, silver, bronze, verse 33. In cutting stones for setting, in carving wood for work, in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, that is to instruct in craftsmanship, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan. Now, verse 35, he's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple. 
by any sort of workman or skilled designer, the verse ends. Now look in chapter 36, verse 1. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. It's so important to remember that the Spirit of God is the one who gives the gifts that any person has, but he gives different gifts to all of us. Let me give some reminders then. This morning, if you're ever wondering what's going on in the life of someone else, and that person's a Christian, and maybe you're having even problems with them, you can pray because the Spirit of God is at work in them. You can also appreciate them because the Spirit of God is at work in them. But you also should appreciate that the Spirit of God has gifted them differently than he's gifted you. Here in the book of Exodus, Moses, we read, is not involved in the craftsmanship. He doesn't have that skill. Bezalel and Aholiab are because they have that skill. We might say it this way. In the Old Testament, one is gifted to speak. One is gifted to use an axe. But if they switch places, they'll both do a lot of damage. <laughs> they're given the gift. They're given to do what they do well. This is a good time for me as a pastor to encourage you. I am a man of shamefully low handyman skills. Shamefully low. But I've met men over my lifetime that are so gifted in that area, but believe they don't have much to offer the Lord because they're not gifted with speech. But brother, sister, don't you understand? God has complemented the body by gifting us differently. We could not accomplish what the Lord wants us to, to accomplish if we were all gifted identically. Only the Lord has everything. He has made us able to complement one another. So here's a question I'd like you to answer in your own heart this morning. What can you be thankful for that God made you gifted of? Over the afternoon, think not what I wish I was, but what did God make me that I'm thankful for that he gifted me at, at this stage of life? And it will also help you to answer an additional question. What can I be thankful for that God has gifted him or her or them with? Rejoice in the diverse gifts of the Lord. Now, because these are gifts, there's no room for boasting and there's no room for wasting. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How could we ever boast about a skill when that skill was not germane or innate to us? It is given from the Spirit of God. But further, how could we ever waste a skill if it was entrusted to us by the Spirit of God? It is given to us to accomplish what He wants done. Didn't you see that in the verse, verse 32? The skill then has the infinitive to, to devise. The skill needs to be accomplished in the intended purpose that the Lord has given it for. There's great joy in doing the things that God has given us. There's great sorrow in failing to use what God has given us. Think of the parable of the talents, the one who buries their talent in the field. Or think of even a gift God's given you that's perverted in the wrong purpose, like Judas who used his math skills to skim from the treasury, or Samson, who used his strength for self-aggrandizing ends. When we use our God-given gifts the way God intended, we actually have great pleasure in that. 
Ecclesiastes 2 says, There's nothing better than to find satisfaction in your own toil. This is a gift from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? I've really loved Eric Little. Perhaps you know who he is. The movie Chariots of Fire is based on his life. Eric Little was an Olympic runner. An Olympic runner who was convinced that he should only obey God first with his God-given skill. But when he used his God-given skill, he delighted in the Lord in it. He eventually did go to China as a missionary, but he first used his skill at running to run well. And when his sister asked, why aren't you going to China first? Why are you running first? Here's how he replied. Jenny, the name of his sister, you have to understand, I believe God made me for a purpose to eventually go to China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's exactly right. God gives gifts at the right time for the right purpose in accord with what he's called us to do. I want to now give a little bit of a theology of calling and give it to you from the Bible. Look again in verse 30. I know we're re-looking at the same verses several times. I just think there's a lot in them. Verse 30, the Bible says the Lord called. All right, so here's our first key of calling. The Lord is the one who does the calling. Now verse 31, the Spirit of God fills. That's our second clue of calling. The Lord calls and the Lord equips. He fills with gifts. Verse 32 says, to devise. That means not only does the Lord call and the Lord gift, the Lord has a divine purpose for the gift he's given. And now look down in chapter 36, verse 1. They do the work in accord with all that the Lord has commanded. Based on these verses, I think we can say some things about calling. Calling is gifting from God for purposes from God within parameters from God. Gifting from God within purposes for God, within parameters for God. Each one of us should use what God has given us. Romans 12 says, as he has given us a gift, so let him use it. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, each has received a gift. Use it. We should all use the gift God's given us. Conversely, we should not try to be or use a gift that belongs to someone else. Philip Ryken writes, we shouldn't try to do what God has not called us to do. He continues, God didn't want people who didn't know how to sew making curtains for the tabernacle. The way others contributed was not by doing, but by giving. Each of us needs to be content to do what God has called us to do and let others do what God has called them to do. This is what 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17 says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. To which God has called him. So vocation, Gene Veith writes, is the Latin word for calling. The doctrine of vocation means God assigns to us a certain life with particular talents, tasks, responsibilities, and relationships, and then calls us into that assignment. All right, at this point you could be asking, okay, I get that I'm supposed to use my gift. How do I know what my gift is? How do I know what my calling is at this stage of life? Maybe it's not what it was before. How do I know what my calling is? Look in verse 34 of Exodus 35. The ESV is normally my favorite translation. Here it translates, he has inspired him to teach. It's pretty clunky and confusing. The Hebrew word is lave for heart. If you have the NASB 
or the King James or the net. They all say he has put in his heart to teach. What is the first way that I know what my calling is? What has God put in your heart to do is the first answer. It's not the only answer, but the first answer is what has God put in your heart that you're burdened to do? Now look in verse 35. This is the second answer. Not only does God put something in our heart to do, but verse 35, he has filled them with skill to do. So the heart is where it begins. Do I have an internal desire? But the heart is not where it ends. It has to be externally confirmed that God has actually gifted you for the thing you believe he has given you desires for. But then as we saw in chapter 36, verse 1, whatever he's put on your heart and given you gifts to do has to fall in line with what he has commanded. We could therefore say that calling is God-given desire and God-given ability to do God-revealed work. Now this work in this passage falls under the realm of art. One more time, if we can go back to the same passage, Exodus 35 Verse 32, he has given them gifts to devise artistic designs. So now we see a basis biblically for art. I want you to notice uh, as I make a couple comments about art and the way the Bible speaks to it, that there apparently are standards for art. Art can be done well or it can be done poorly. And we know that because in the passage he's given them skill so that they can do art well. It's not all art is equal. I'm from Detroit and the University of Toronto was not too far to get to and there's an art exhibit in Toronto. This is a true story and you should look it up later. The art exhibit in Toronto had the most popular exhibit over their entire year, a pair of glasses, a pair of glasses that were on the floor. They were viewed as a postmodern critique of seeing the world through your own lens, and it became the most popular exhibit that the Toronto Art Museum had for the year. Until they found out later, it was because somebody's glasses fell out of their pocket. <laughs> That's why they were there the entire time. It's a reminder that art can be done well or it can be done poorly. And it's done well in accord with objective standards. They're here to build a tabernacle, but the tabernacle has blueprints that God himself has designed. This gives us a little bit of clue to know when art is good versus when art is poor. The tabernacle is meant to reflect heaven on earth, as does all great art. Let me give you a quote by G.K. Chesterton. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find you are no longer free to draw a giraffe. Chesterton's point is apropos. To do art well means we do it in accord with the creator's creation. So here's how I would say it today. In common grace, God gifts all sorts of people with artistic abilities, those who are his followers and those who are not. But those who do love him see his art and reflect their creator through echoing his artistic excellence. Perhaps someone in this room will be used by God to use art 
in song or writing the next great American novel or in painting or in craftsmanship. As you think through that God-given gift that you're given, I just want to encourage you to reflect the grand artist artistry in both the major and the minor key. It's true that this world is not all that it should be. So you could object, Josh, how can I reflect the creator's creation when the world is cursed? But remember, the minor key of the curse is overcome by the major key at the cross, and so is all good art. It shows how God has done victory, even through agony. Well, the text concludes here in God's personal presence. And can you flip in your Bible to Exodus 39, flip a few chapters. In the preceding chapters, the ones that we're not going to focus on today, 36 through 38, it records the re-given instructions of how to build the tabernacle and how the people do, in fact, build the tabernacle. But now here in chapter 39, we see that this time they follow the word of the Lord. So Exodus 39, if you'll pick up with me, In verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Now, verse 43 of Exodus 39, and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded them. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. It's rather similar, isn't it? To Genesis one, when God creates and sees it and says, it is good. Now here are the people, after failing with the golden calf, now have hearts that want to follow the Lord's command. And they do it, and Moses says, it is good. And the timing is remarkable. So look in chapter 40, if you just continue one verse down. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The first month Relative to what? This is the one-year anniversary of when he brought them out of Egypt. So here now, one year later, the thing that they were called out for, the presence of God, is what they've been called to. This is a good reminder for you and I that the word holy is not about what you stay away from. It's about what you embrace. God did not bring them out of Egypt just so they would leave Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt so that they would gain God. The reason God calls us to be holy is not so we can be out of the world or uncomfortable with culture, but so that we can gain Christ more fully. To be holy is not about letting go. It's about gaining the glory of the Lord. Now I want you to see how the book ends. So we're in chapter 40. If you'll flip down to verse 34 of chapter 40, how the glory of the Lord finishes the book of Exodus. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is now the first time the tabernacle has been completed and the Lord consecrates it as he said he would. He fills it. But even more than that, God's glory goes with them. Look in verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. And the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Remember, the tabernacle is a tent. 
It's like theirs. It can be collapsed. It can be picked up and it can be taken. Why? So that they will know God will never leave them or forsake them. Fanny Crosby picked up on this theme when she wrote this hymn. Perhaps you know the lyrics. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers me with each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. She's hitting on what this passage is showing us, that Jesus now fulfills and promises to every Christian, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. There's nowhere you could go that I would not go with you. And yet that touching sentiment does have a distance in Exodus 40. Look now in verse 35. Exodus 40, verse 35. Right after the glory of the Lord fills the temple, look in verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You may remember several chapters ago, Moses had a makeshift tent where the Lord would meet. You might remember then Moses went in the tent and God stayed out of the tent. And now here the reverse happens. God's glory descends in the tabernacle, but that means Moses has to stay out. Here we see the theme that we've seen all through the book. How can an unholy people dwell with a perfectly holy God? When the Lord comes to this presence in their midst, Moses has to stay out. The climax of the book leaves Moses outside. The tabernacle is the closest they've ever come to God's unapproachable light. But thankfully, Exodus is not the end of the Bible. When Jesus Christ comes to earth, we read this in Colossians 1.19. In Jesus was the fullness of God pleased to dwell bodily. The glory comes on the tabernacle. Everyone has to leave. The glory of God in Christ is welcome because he is the sinless and perfect son of God. Jesus knows this about himself. And so in John 2, Jesus says this, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. Brothers and sisters, great news for you this morning. The glory of God that kept away Moses is the glory of God in Christ that welcomes us to the Father. Because Jesus is the tabernacle in flesh. And Jesus is the temple that was broken so that we can gain access to God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that thick curtain separating the Holy of Holies was torn in two so that anyone who comes through Christ can have access to God. In Jesus is perfection embodied. Therefore, through Jesus, access is granted that even Moses didn't have, but that you and I have through faith. So the first question I have for you this morning, have you come to the cross through Jesus so that you can have the eternal access to God in Christ, the hope of glory? The second question I have for you, has God moved the needle in your heart from have to to want to? 
the gifts he's given, the goods he's given, he can be trusted with because he's a good father that can move us from have to to want to. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Dear God, I ask that through your mercy and grace that you would use this passage to move us from have to to want to. Lord, you did that with these people by your mercy and by your justice. After they sinned with the golden calf and they repented and they realized they could not live without your presence, they then freely gave all of their goods and gifts because they loved the Lord and trusted him with their future. I pray that you would do that so that we delight in time with you, communion with you, and a relationship with you. But this passage reminds us that we cannot enter your glory on our own because we have sin that separates us from you. So Lord, thank you that you put our sin on your son, your son who is the perfect sinless substitute, the tabernacle, but who is also the Passover lamb bearing our sin away. Perhaps someone this morning needs to come to Jesus so that they can have eternal access to God through forgiveness. Move them this morning to just put their faith simply but truly in the fact that Jesus paid it all and it is finished and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do this, Lord, for your own glory and for our good. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.